We're going to continue this morning in a brand new sermon series. So we've been looking at this for a while, what we're going to do next. And uh, if you got an engagement sheet, by the way, just one more thing that's been happening at Family Valley Church, journal printing our forever go-to spot closed, and they gave all their business to, or they sold their business to Better Newspapers, which is Shoppers Review. So this is the first week we've actually worked with a new vendor. That's why we have so many engagement sheets, because they printed way more than they needed, because they didn't know how to print them yet. <laughs> they said, you can have them all. So we have like a lot of engagement sheets this morning. Um, but that dude over there is super cool, and it was nice to finally hit, you know, get in that pattern with them. So um, with that being said, uh, we're starting a brand new series called uh, Letters from a Caesarean Jail. And that's not Caesarean, by the way. <laughs> Caesarean, as in the rulers of Rome. And, um, and so, I don't know if you know this, but there's a famous book by Martin Luther King Jr. called Letters from a Birmingham Jail, where he wrote out to the church from jail in the middle of the civil rights protests and struggles, right? He had been jailed for what he stood for, and he was pleading with the church to stand up with those who are suffering, right? And I know we all have our own experiences and, and uh, different generations of people gathered, and, and life is complicated. But he was exhorting the church to stand for something that matters in his mind. And I wonder, if you were imprisoned, if you were suffering, what would your letter look like? What kind of letter would you write I can already imagine myself, as I thought about this, that my letters would not necessarily look like Martin Luther King's letters, nor like Paul's letters. But Paul actually wrote four letters from prison to the church. And I'm always amazed, because it's so easy, when I saw the list of what letters he wrote, that you can miss in reading the letter that he is in jail at the time. He's writing these letters. The four letters are actually Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. And so we're going to spend this series looking at Colossians and Philemon because there's a really interesting connection in those two books. And so uh, we've already, we've already talked before about Ephesians and Philippians, but that was kind of a funny thing is like, wow, those are, those are prison epistles, but you don't instantly think of them being prison epistles because they're so robust with the gospel and with good theology and teaching for the church. A little more background here is that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, I think is how you say this, uh, and it's a small town near Laodicea and Heropolis. And it's like a little tri-city area, but what's funny is Colossae is the small town of the three. The one's like a place where you go to get like healing and stuff and like, you know, kind of take a break. And the other's like where the business happens. And then you have this little town that Paul writes to, Colossae. And uh, that's where the book of Colossians actually gets its name. Paul actually didn't plant the church that he wrote to here. And in fact, we'll find out in the letter, he never even visited Colossae yet. He says that, I, I hope to visit you soon, but he's not been there yet. But it may have been started as an outgrowth by Epaphras, who heard the gospel in Ephesus, where church, where Paul did plant a church. So he preached in Ephesus, and because of his preaching, it grew out into a new uh, gospel work in Colossae that Paul was writing to exhort, encourage, and instruct. And that's the last point I'm going to make before we pray and get into the word, is that Paul writes this letter because he's addressing problems amongst the believers there. And there's two primary problems he's trying to address. The first is that they're facing corrupt philosophies of the mind, right? So this kind of Gnosticism. And the big struggle they were having was they were living in this culture where they were saying that all 
material, all matter is evil, and only spiritual things are good. And so therefore, to be good, it has to be spiritual only, thoughts and, you know, um, uh, but nothing, everything fleshly was you know, they were kind of getting at the sin issue, but they were saying there was no redemption in anything fleshly or tangible. And he's going to write against that, this, that, that lie to the church because they're believing that partly. And the second thing he's writing against is bad religious traditions. So he's going to get into the old, because there was like about 11,000 Jews there in Colossae mixing in, and they were still holding over old religious traditions. And so the book's kind of broken into it's four chapters. It's a short book if you haven't read it. And it's kind of broken into two major movements, chapters one and two, and then three and four, where he addresses more of the religious and how you function as a believer in Christ and what we what we call holy and what we don't. So that's the kind of introduction this morning to the book. I'm excited about this. We're going to go line by line through this. We'll cover the first 14 verses this morning. And then, man, this book is so, it's a small book, but it's packed full of good theology that not just is like, oh, that's interesting, but that should shape our lives, right? That should really change the way we function daily. So with that in mind, I'm going to pray that God would reveal himself to us together, that we could understand his word by his teaching Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for the chance to be gathered with you and talk to you, as we already have done a few times this morning. I pray now that as we get into your word, that you would be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and would lead us into all wisdom and knowledge of the truth that we would have a deep and abiding faith and not a not a shallow, head-level, sounds-good faith, but a real faith that actually transforms our life, that transforms our habits and our practices. May we conform to your Spirit's leading, and may we conform to your Word. We pray, Father, that we would do this um, for your glory and our good and for the benefit of our neighbors and the nations, that we could be changed to be of use to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is a good old book study, man, and we're just going to start, if you've not ever read a letter, of, hopefully you have, right, epistle. Um, they're just letters that Paul wrote, and I love, always love about epistles is the way they start. <laughs> so here we go in verse 1. Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters of Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. And this, I, I love this because I just already, in hearing the way he opens the letter, I'm like, this dude's for me. <laughs> you know, he is, he, but Paul, even in that introduction, he packs so much stuff in. And I often, I can't help but, and I read an introduction to any epistle, I think, how different would life be if we approached one another with that kind of grace? and understanding about what God is doing. Look at what he packs in there. He says, Paul, that's just who he is, right? And then he describes himself, an apostle, one who is sent of Christ Jesus, the anointed Messiah. And then here he goes, by the will, the wishes, the desires of God. So he's like, I'm coming to you, but not just of my own volition, not because I think it's a good idea, but because I've been sent by God to come to you in this letter. And he says then, Timothy, our brother, or actually the word says Timothy, the brother, right? So Timothy, the brother, what? The brother of Christ, Jesus, the brother of me. And so Paul doesn't come in this letter alone. We call this a Pauline epistle, right? But he doesn't come alone from the very beginning. He's like, it's me and Timothy, and we're writing this letter to you. Now, I don't think they're sitting there taking turns, writing lines, but it's kind of like, you know, me and you sitting down, hey, let's say something, and we're going to talk to the church and call us say, and, and what are we going to say to them? 
And then here's, so that's his, this is who's writing the letter. And this is going to be read, by the way, publicly for the church. Um, and so it's like a proclamation, right? To who? The holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, the word there is one. It's hagios. It's the saints. To the saints in Colossae. Uh, the saints in Christ who are faithful in Christ in Colossae. And then he starts this way. Grace and peace from God our Father. And I think, man, I don't know about you, but like, who needs grace and peace in their life? <laughs> you know, it's like he starts the letter out and he's like, and by the way, as I, before I get started here, uh, I want to offer you grace and peace. The idea is like charity and serenity. And we've been talking about that, of course. And so it's in the forefront of my mind, this idea of resting in peace and having peace in the troubled times. And I'm not saying it to you as one who's figured that out <laughs> because I find myself all too often panicked and not finding peace. But here he says, have God's charity. That's what grace means, the charity of God, and the serenity from God. Listen to what the word says, our Father. See, those kind of words we can just throw away and go, yeah, God, our Father. Yeah, God, our Father. Go ahead, Paul, get to the point. Let's get to the theology. Listen, Paul's already teaching deep theology. He believes that God is intended uh, purpose is in his sending. He's not coming alone. And then he says, and this father, this blessing, the grace and peace upon you is our father. Paul recognizes that he and Timothy and the believers in Colossae, and dare I say it, even you and me have the same loving father. Not my father in the faith, not the father even, but our father for you and for me, for the saints, for all who are faithful and believe. The letter starts with a blessing, and it could be a formality, but it could be the habit of Paul to always start with a blessing. And I have a question then. Who in your own life could use some grace and peace? Kind of hurt a little bit when Emily was sharing about things get crazy. It's like, man, I just need cry out to God, but I just need that. I need to have some peace in my life. I need some charity from God that I don't deserve unearned favor, the grace of God. And so those are the first two things to think about here is the offers in the letter, grace and peace to the church in Colossae. He's going to say some hard things, and they're going to struggle with some things, and they're doing some things wrong. But man, he is blessing them off the bat. And, I, and we're going to roll right into now verse 3, because then he just adds on this. He says, listen to the words. I mean, I read this, and I just get encouraged. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up from you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. That's already like, okay, Paul, easy, like out of the gate. There's so much going on there. But he says that we always thank God for you every time, flowing from the grace and peace that Paul hopes he blesses them. He says, every time we think of you, we thank God for you. Listen, every time we pray for you, we thank God for you. And notice again, it's not Paul saying, I, I thank God for you when I think of you. He's like, no, all of us here, 
Where? Where Paul is? Where? In prison. Paul is with a team of people, and he's serving the gospel there, even though he's in chains. And in the middle of this, he says, and we thank God for you every time we think of you, and we pray for you. This means a few things here, by the way. It means that Paul and others with him are praying regularly for other believers in Colossae, where they aren't. Listen, where they've never been. And, and you can make the connection and go, well, Paul cares because he cares about Ephesus, and then, you know, he knows this Epaphras who went and preached there, and then they came to believe in Jesus there. But these are people that Paul has never interacted with except for this letter that we know of. And he's already burdened for them, and he prays regularly for the believers there. It also means that Paul and others are glad in their hearts that there are believers in Colossae, that there are believers there that the gospel has taken a foothold. And what we're going to hear in the rest of Paul's introduction to this letter is his, his excitement and his joy with the spreading of the gospel amongst the church. See, so we can jump into, and he's going to get into some of the teaching. Uh, it gets really thick and in, in starting in verse 15. But as he enters into it, he's doing so with a heart that's glad for all the gospel um, success that's happening already and what they've already heard about. Verse 4, because we have heard of your faith, your faith in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, and in the love you have for all the saints. So there's two things that Paul's heard of, that that they have faith in Jesus Christ and that they love other believers. I wonder, what would it take for a church to have a great reputation? A reputation that precedes you. Is it a great program, great advertising campaign, great strategy? Or is it, man, these people have faith. Notice it doesn't say, it says faith in Jesus Christ. You have that thing like, you know, love Jesus. Listen, Jesus loves us. We have faith in Jesus. We have faith in Jesus when things aren't going well. We have faith in Jesus when we're crying out because of their great faith in Jesus Christ and Colossae and then the love they have for other believers. So like this is the reputation then amongst the people. It gets all the way to Paul who's in prison. Letters are coming back and forth. You won't believe what's happening in in Colossae. The gospel has taken root there and Paul is excited about it. Because they've heard of the faith in Jesus Christ, and they've heard of the love the church has for all God's people, all the saints. Isn't that interesting? By the way, there, I'm going to take a little detour this morning and say that faith in Jesus Christ needs to be named and proclaimed. And I don't mean like name and proclaim it. I just mean, but it needs to be identified. He's writing to a, 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 an area where there's lots of philosophy and theory and even some theology. And in the middle of it, he, he says, what I've heard coming out of that town or the mixing, that little town, is that you believe in Jesus Christ. There's been several opportunities this week where I've been around folks and we can be squishy about what we have faith in, right? We, we, can, we can not name his name. We have faith in Jesus Christ, 
the one who died for our sins. And Paul's going to unpack that here, but I want to say it as we get into it, that that is what we believe, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that we could be free of those sins and, and celebrate with him forever, and then indeed be free to what? Love all his people and love the world. But that is rooted 100% in who Jesus is, in his unique role. And Paul is already building the ramp to where he's going to go in chapter, in verse 15, talking about who Christ is. He's going to get very practical. Remember I told you one of the problems they had is like all matter is evil and all spiritual is good. Well, Jesus Christ is a material savior. <laughs> he's not a spiritual savior only. He's not ethereal. He's not just in the wind somewhere. He was flesh and blood incarnated in this life. And that's unique and that matters. And so Paul's building the road to say that there's God who died for our sins that's real and tangible and is going to redeem all that same matter. Listen, redeem us in our sin. So we have, then he says, um, I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus that matters. They're naming it. They know who they believe in and your love for all the saints, all the church. And then he said, we're going to get deeper into this in verse 5. This faith and love spring up from where? The hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, or the word says this, in the true word, the gospel that has come to you. So he's like, this, so we're going kind of backwards here a little bit, but he's like, this faith in Jesus Christ, this love for the saints is springing forth from you. Why? Because you have hope for heaven that this life is not all there is. And because something, and listen to what the word says, is laid up for you in heaven, that means it's sitting there waiting for you. It doesn't mean you have to earn it or deserve it. It means there's a spot in heaven, there's a place for you, there's an assurance for us in Christ, and that because of that, because we have that kind of anchor in heaven, now in this life we have faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and we can love, we do love fellow brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? So it's in verse 5 that he says that faith and love spring forth from what is laid up for you in heaven, church, saints, what's already there, set aside, cannot be taken from you. And that is that you've already heard in the true word, the gospel, that's the good news, that has come to you. Stop here in a minute. Come to you where? in your sin and brokenness, where you were when you heard the gospel of Christ. See, this kind of faith matters because it manifests itself in our life in ways that are, that are winsome to the world, but it's ultimately rooted in our own redemption story. The gospel came to you. It came into your life. It's like you're in verse 6. That's the true word, the true gospel not a false gospel. I wonder, what is the true message of the gospel? Antithetically, what are false gospels? You think this is the problem they had in Colossae only? Problem exists today, here, now. Listen, the problem can exist in our church. You start thinking there's something in the gospel besides Christ dying for your sins that you could be set free of them, that you, you're saved by grace through faith and not through works, lest anyone should boast, right? That there's nothing we can do. And you go, yes, yes, Bill, I understand. We all know that that's obvious. Listen to the language you use sometimes. If you just do a little better, 
right? If, if you just, we've, I, I was this week with some folks and they're like, well, you've lived a good life. What? Surely that, you know, God's going to be, because you've lived a good life. Listen, the measuring stick is Jesus Christ and his offer for us is pure and it saves us. It saves us in spite of ourselves. And so we end up inheriting this promise of heaven, the true gospel that comes to us in our sin and brokenness, that we were dead in our sin, and the true message of the gospel is redemption. What does that mean? There are false messages, right? Just, just love people. You'll be fine, right? Do, just do your best. I mean, God's fair, right? False gospels of uh, that aren't the gospel at all. Paul, interestingly here, says, you have heard the true word of the gospel. Who? People in Colossae. How? Because they're believing in Jesus Christ. They're not believing the false messages. And there are many. And then Paul goes on to celebrate the gospel work. Watch this, verse 6. The gospel came to you. Listen to this. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and you understood. Here it is, church. God's grace in all of its truth. That's the gospel. God's grace in all of its truth. And, and Paul says two things here. He says, the gospel is spreading all over the world, and it's the same gospel that's working in you. Like, you think about that, and for us in this time, we can travel all over the world. We go, yeah, the gospel is being shared all over the world right now. The real work of the gospel is happening. Look at what the word says. The gospel, the gospel is bearing fruit. It doesn't say that the church is bearing fruit. It doesn't say that believers are, it says that the gospel, the good news, euangelion of Jesus Christ is itself producing fruit and growing all over the planet, all over the world. And that same gospel that's blossoming and bearing fruit all over the world is bearing fruit in you, in your life. When? Since the day you heard it, and the day you understood it, that it was God's grace and all its truth. You hear the word, and then you understand the word. This is the way it works. You hear the word, and you know the word. And I don't mean you know, memorize some Bible, right? I mean, Bible's awesome, but you know he, he's for me, not against me. He died to save me. I can do nothing to earn it. The gospel is for us meaning it endor it's endorsing, it's, it's, the, it's the spirit, it's the teaching in us that blossoms out fruit despite the season that we're in right now. And you've understood this. So it goes backwards then, right? Now here in verse 7, we'll actually get to what I told you. We think that probably Epaphras planted the church in um, Colossae because here he says, Paul says in verse 7, this gospel of truth you learned or Epaphras taught to you. He's our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. 
and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so now Paul's giving credit where credit's doing. He's like, Epaphras is the one that preached it to you, but he preached on our behalf. And you go, well, did Paul send Epaphras there to preach the gospel there? Or did Epaphras hear the gospel and go? You know what we're going to hear about Epaphras? He's one of them. He's from Colossea. It's probably his hometown. And he probably heard the gospel and went back and proclaimed the gospel to his people. That gospel is taking root there. You learned it, or Epaphras taught it to you in his faithful service of Jesus Christ. See what it says there? Faithful service of Christ with us or on our behalf, who also then told us of your love in the Spirit. So um, Epaphras has been going back and forth. You're going to hear that at the end of the letter. At the end of the letter, by the way, if you want to read it, and again, I encourage you to read the whole whole book, of course, as we study it. But um, there's a whole list, man. He's got such a big team of people who are participating with the gospel, even while he's in chains himself. Okay? So what is all this to say? Remember how he started that whole section? He he always thanks God for them when he prays for them, right? So he's like, I thank God for you. I reckon they probably figure we thank God for Paul, right? We thank God for Epaphras who came and shared. He thanks God for them every time he prays for them. So then you have grace and peace, now thanksgiving that Paul is saying that we collectively offer when we collectively pray for you. And we see the gospel bearing fruit among you and in you and indeed all over the world. So you have them teaching the, the true gospel of God's grace. So, so here's the question then as we, in this section. Does your heart, does my heart overflow with thanksgiving when you or I see or hear the gospel is bearing fruit somewhere? Is our knee-jerk reaction to go like, wow, that is awesome. Thank you, God, that the gospel is taking root in Guatemala. Or thank you, God, that the gospel is taking root in Indiana. Thank you, God, that the gospel is taking root in a prison. Thank you, God, that the gospel is taking root in that church across town. Thank you, God, that the gospel is taking root amongst your people. Do our hearts, I remember when Pastor uh, Matt Kalman came and preached here, he said, do we get excited about the gospel? And I was like, that's a great question. Like, is it worth living and dying for to have people come to know Christ? Or has it become like just one more thing that you can do? And sure, do it if you want, don't if you want. We got a lot of things to worry about. Man, it should be the thing that brings joy. And Paul, you can see the thanksgiving. By the way, the thanksgiving there is you, uh, no, it's, uh, uh, you Christo. It's the same thing that Christ does at the Last Supper when he breaks bread. I give thanks every time I think of you and pray for you. It's the same exact word that's used when Christ is at the Last Supper breaking bread. That spirit, God's spirit, is rising up in Paul when he hears the gospel taking root in Colossea in their hearts and all throughout the world bearing fruit. Does it do that in us? Sure. That's a great question because actually... These are letters being taken back and forth. There's no written Bible. There'll be the Old Testament scriptures. They're proclaiming that Christ is fulfilling those Old Testament promises of the Messiah. When they're saying things like... Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you said there's Bibles in prison, not for Paul and those folks. They're literally writing the Bible in real time. Yeah, and they're making an argument for 
all the promises that came in the first testament, right, that, that Jesus is the Christ, they know, the Jewish people know that means that they think he's the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the promises, right? And so, um, and even that would have been the scrolls written, read in the, um, in the, uh, not the sanctuaries. I'm trying to get the word for it though. Huh? Synagogues. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they had those, but you didn't have your own copy of the Bible. I mean, it was, it was a synagogue. But they're making arguments in letters that this is exactly what they're doing, that Christ is the point of what's been happening. And so all this is welling up in, in Paul is to be excited for the gospel taking root, the gospel that brings God's grace to the people who are suffering and in need of God's presence. And so, and that was a great question. And, and so with that in mind, then Paul says this, he's going to turn to one final thing here. So we got grace and peace, thanksgiving, and then the fourth stop today is going to be prayer. And we're going to start in verse nine, because we, he already said, I pray for you, but look at what it says. For this reason, since the day we first heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul says to the same believers in Colossae, you're in the middle of a struggle. There's lots of misinformation. You've believed the true gospel. And we, and we, we thank God for you every time we pray for you. But we have not stopped praying for you for this reason. What? Look at verse 9. For this reason. What reason? That Epaphras had taught you the true gospel of God's grace, that your love was testified to in the Spirit, that the uh, gospel had been bearing fruit, that the hope of heaven was among you, that the love that you have for all God's people and the faith that you've demonstrated in Jesus Christ is known to me for those reasons. That's a lot. Paul says, I've not stopped praying for you. He continues to pray, not stop praying for you. What? Asking God to fill you, the church in Colossae, with knowledge of his will. How beautiful is that? Praying that he would fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And, uh, and now we're going to start to see him kind of play with that idea of spirit versus flesh. All spiritual wisdom and understanding, um, all truth in the spirit of God, that he's praying that they would come to know that you might uh, have that knowledge. For what purpose? Here we go. Um, and we pray this, verse 10, for the purpose of or in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and that you might please him in every way. And so there's two things. We're going to break down the second one, but because it's really obvious, the structure here in the sentence. But we're going to pray this in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord. That's why Paul's praying for the church, and that we might please the Lord in our life. Um, and then how do you please the Lord in your life? Here they go. First, by bearing fruit in every good work. Second, by growing in the knowledge of God. Third, by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so and so you can endure in patience, and fourthly, by joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share an inheritance of his saints in the light. And so there's a whole lot there too. But Paul's like, because we've always given thanks for you and because we've been praying for you, we, we've not stopped. The word there says we pray ceaselessly for you that you might live a man a life worthy of the Lord and that you might please him in every way. What does it look like then to please him, to bear fruit in the work, to grow in our understanding of God and our knowledge of God and our relationship with him? 
to be strengthened, the word says, with all power. That's dunamis, ability to accomplish, to be strengthened in those things. And then fourthly, and this is one that really stuck with me, and probably because Mike's had a hard week, because if you don't know Mike, he's all about joy. <laughs> he's like, I want the joy. I texted Mike this this morning, this verse, giving joyful thanks that that's what Paul was praying for in them, that they would have joyful thanks to the Father, that that would be their lifestyle, their normal experience. Why, what is that rooted in? Because the Father has qualified you, or the word says us, to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, that God himself has given the church a gift that qualifies us to spend eternity with him in truth, in light. And he doubles down on it. For he has, where are we at? Rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. And so he's like, I'm praying for you all the time because you need to live a life worthy of Christ. But then there's this reality that you're going to please him in these four ways because he has brought you from darkness into light. He has invited you, indeed, he has qualified you to be partakers of the inheritance with all the saints. And so Paul lays it out, and he's like, this is all God's work among you. God's qualified you, indeed us, he includes himself, to share in the kingdom of light, rescuing us from this darkness we're in right now. He's, And I love this idea. The word is he's transported us from darkness to light. I have this like, mental image of like a, uh, a tram or something. You know, you're going to Six Flags back when they used to go to Six Flags and you ride a tram in, you know, or you go to a, a big uh, fancy muckety-muck and they pick up in a golf cart at your car and they ride you up to the... It's like he moves us from darkness into light and, and that's part of the inheritance that we've got in Christ because of God the Father. He moves us in grace through the gospel to light to indeed be people of the light. And so it's not a passive thing that's happening, but an active movement of God's people, a redeeming of God's people. And indeed, he says that, that he has rescued us. The word is redeemed us there, or rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom. Listen now what he says. First of all, it said to the kingdom of light. Now it says to the kingdom of what? The son whom he loves. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. The uniqueness of Christ that we've been transported in our faith into that place where God's son reigns. And then verse 14, in whom, who? Here it is, church. Jesus Christ. We have redemption, right? The forgiveness of our sins. Like, Paul goes all the way around there, but he's like, you've been moved from darkness into light. You're part of the kingdom of light. And indeed, you're part of the kingdom of the son that he loves. And your sins have been redeemed. It's so funny to me that it comes at the end of the introduction there where he says, and your sins have been redeemed, but I want you to see the gospel is bearing fruit. The grace of God has been threading throughout all this is manifest right there in verse 14. In Jesus Christ, we have the redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's a very specific gospel. It's the gospel of truth, the gospel of honesty, the gospel of God's grace. 
And, and, and then Paul just does all this to get them to a conversation about who Christ is. So we're going to pick up next week who Christ is, and it's going to be deep. But I wonder if we can stop here because Paul says, you know, grace and peace to you. I always thank God when I think you or I pray for you. And I pray for you all the time, which means he's always thanking God for the church there and those who are believing the gospel. But then I ask, I ask myself a question, and I'm going to ask you the question. Do you pray for other believers? Listen, I know we do, right? Usually pray for healing. Oh, God, somebody's sick. Pray for grieving. Oh, God, somebody died. Pray for crisis. Let me ask you a question. I'm asking myself the question. Do we pray for other believers the way Paul prayed for the church in Colossae? That God's wisdom and manifestation would be known among them. Listen, that they would rightly understand the gospel. They're believers in Christ, right? That they would be committed all the more to Jesus Christ and not some kind of nebulous concept, that they would be um, equipped for the day, for the work, that they could live in a way that's pleasing to him. Do we pray? And I don't know if, I don't know how you are, but all too often I have to confess to you this morning, I go, well, they're Christian. They're good. (laughs) They know the gospel. They've been saved. Pray for the lost. (laughs) Pray for somebody else. Pray for someone who has bad theology. But Paul, and it strikes me deeply, has spent the introduction to this letter saying, He's praying for those who are believing the gospel. There is a, uh, what is the word here? A, um, a transformation is maybe a word, a building of faith that takes t- over, that comes over time. You believe in Christ. Yes, I believe in Christ. He died for my sins. Yes, he died for my sins. But there's something in, I guess we call it sanctification maybe. There's something in sanctification that you are growing as a disciple of Christ. And Paul, and I don't think it's Paul uniquely here, because he says we, we, we. He didn't say me, 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 right? We've all been praying for you. We've all been hoping for you. We've all been petitioning God for you. That you'd have this full understanding of the grace you've already received. I'm not sure that we usually pray for others in that way. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. I think I need to more. Oh, God, give them more conviction of your uniqueness. Give them more clarity of understanding the gospel. Give them more ability to express through love who you are and why it matters and and why we're here anyway, what this life is about. But too often you go, well, they check the box, right? I mean, they're saved. And we go on with our lives because we're busy. One final point here is when Paul says all these things, he's praying for the church in Colossae, but, and this comes in chapter 4, verse 16, you don't have to look it up, but it's there. He's praying for Laodicea, and he's praying for Aeropolis, and he's praying for anyone who reads this letter, essentially. Because what he says at the end of the letter of Colossians, he says, and when you've read this letter at your assembly, make sure you go and have it read in these other churches too, these other assemblies as well. And then make sure that whenever you're done reading the letter there, that there's a letter that I've written there that you can read also. He kind of has this idea that you're going to exchange information with other believers and be mutually encouraged in your faith by this work. You can then work from that idea that Paul is indeed writing and encouraging and blessing and praying all these things for us in the same way. Not just Paul, but his companions, the early church. 
that their hearts would be overjoyed with the thought that 2,000 years later, we're still believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, still proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, indeed still living our lives rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's my question then as we close today. Where do you need grace and peace in your life? Because, you know, in the end, it's not about us, but we live this life. Where do we need it? Or, or here's another question. What are you thankful for? Paul says, I, I thank God every time I pray for you. Are we even thankful for other believers? Are we thankful for the gospel work in the world? Are we thankful for the gospel work in us? And then if we are, how can we leverage that thankfulness to a constant state of prayer that God would be glorified more and more each day? That we would live up to this gospel we've been called to, and I don't mean by earning our salvation, but by uh, celebrating who he is. <laughs> Listen, by naming names. By saying the thing. It's not some ethereal salvation it's rooted in Jesus Christ. It's not some concept from the Bible. It's the work of Jesus himself among us. Final thought, it's not some spiritual only thing, but it's flesh and blood being manifest in our lives, which, church, I think is crazy. I think that's crazy. But that's what's being proclaimed, is that it's manifest among us. How can we be praying for more of that, more of that, Father, as we pursue him? So that's our introduction. Next week, we're going to get into Christ directly, which is going to be awesome. I'd encourage you to read ahead. And, uh, and I want to invite you to be reflective on these things as well. And I love that Becky asked a question. If you have questions or conversations you want to have, let's have them. I think we all need to grow together. And so uh, pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and for um, this interesting and unique introduction to the letter of Colossians, written from in chains, written from imprisonment to the church who's free. Father, we thank you so much for the way the gospel works amongst the nations. And Lord, maybe today we, we've been just caught up in ourselves, and maybe I've been caught up in myself. We want to thank you for the way the gospel is taking root all over the world. And for all the brokenness we see, there's so many successes. And for all the, the, the ways that we harm, we know there's tons and tons of help and love. There's tons of co-suffering and tons of proclamation. Lord, that we would be your people and that we would willfully and directly proclaim that it's you, Jesus, who saves. That we need you for salvation. Father, for your Son and our Savior Jesus, we give thanks and praise. He is alone worthy of that. And then for the Holy Spirit's work amongst us, for the exhortation, for the endurance, for the faith, we praise you and we thank you. Help us to continue Help us to be faithful and live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.